lights, camera, cine... Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program to sing the magic to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Roll the intro! I, I normally sing, but, but there has been this calamity, this calamitous situation that does not allow me to do the intro because now I don't know if there's literally a war of the worlds outside. Martians, perhaps? Intro hey, rolling. we know that in the rolling early intro. years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligence, greater than man and yet as immortal as our own. But yet we still dance our intro. Yeah, but you know what? I know a little place where peas grow. <laughs> and I love me some Palmason champagne. So, let's go ahead and get started with tonight's broadcast. Hello everyone and welcome again to another great episode of Cinemagic with your host, Jonathan Gondois and the greatest there ever was. Rick Acevedo over there on my left with the greatest ever was actually behind him if you're actually watching us. Uh, (laughs) So last week we said we're going to give you a little sneak peek of someone who meant a lot to us and famous directors. And I'm I'm hoping from all the hints that we gave you that you totally knew who it was today, the one and only Orson Welles. Yeah, because the the hints were actually very clear. Um, I feel that Mm -hmm. we were very specific. Um, I agree. I mean, if you if you can't get it, then it's on you. You know, I'm just saying that, being very clear right now that it's on you if you can't under if, if you didn't understand that it was uh, Orson Welles that we were talking about. But you know, that's yeah. I <laughs> I, I I don't know how you get that because uh, especially when Rick said the way I wanted uh, to live my life in film, that should have give you the biggest hint. Because Orson Welles is just a figure that I want to do. A genius who eventually goes off and gets fat and does whatever he wants. So, uh, <laughs> I love that part. It, yeah. And he loves Shakespeare, too. So, you know. Yes, which I, which I also do. Which is another project we'll talk about probably in the Fall future. Fall stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But yes, today, Rick and I just want to go over a little bit about Orson Welles. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just in case if you don't know him, we'll give a little background on his life and careers and really talk about what it meant to us as filmmakers uh, to really have someone like Orson Welles and his words uh, and his career and everything that he did and how that influences us going forward from now uh, to later, to going forward. So I'm, I'm super excited about this one. This is one when we were thinking about this podcast before we said that we had to actually talk about uh, it's just we were both big fans, and we couldn't do we couldn't do a podcast about film and not talk about. I, I, I think especially when you're when you're talking about history of of any kind as it relates to you know to film, television, everything like that, you have to talk about Orson Welles because what makes Orson Welles unique and I think different from any other figure of the over the last dare I say probably one hundred years is the fact that. Orson Welles was he, he was he was someone that was known as a brilliant man. You know, he mm-hmm. was working in radio, and we'll get into all that uh, story in just a second. And then went into film, and then for many different reasons, his career took a massive spiral and knows that. But he never lost his iconic. Status. In fact, he gained iconic status and just sort of went <laughs> through his entire life with that. Like every time you saw Orson Welles on television or you saw something on television about Orson Welles, especially after his death, Orson Welles just, he had a presence. He had something that drew you to want to watch that. I, I don't really want to say that it was, uh, you know, a, a train wreck, per se, <laughs> because there was something about Orson Welles where he just always managed to keep uh, an interesting and sort of unique level of class about everything. That just that's really what made him so fascinating, you know. 
No, a hundred percent. I was introduced to Orson Welles as probably many kids of my generation, honestly, through the Transformers movie. Uh, <laughs> there is a backlog. <laughs> Going into him, and, and I really mean it uh, for those who haven't seen it, but uh, being younger, literally a voice of a villain and a cartoon show. Uh, as many people would first mm -hmm. kind of get introduced to them from my age and going back to find this long list of such accomplishments and brilliance that he could bring a gravitas and make the best movie ever, as uh, according to film critics and consensus, and also still be one of the greatest like voice actors and something that means something to even little children years and years and years later. I, it's, it's almost... I gotta be honest, I, I was introduced to Orson Welles the first time and you know when i was a kid and this is back when when uh cell phones were not a thing um cell phones were actually the size of bricks and they cost about twelve thousand dollars a minute to operate um mm -hmm. <laughs> so the family always got together uh i was watching magnum pi with my stepfather and we we're watching magnum pi and he actually was the voice of the mysterious author Robin Masters and he was featured on that show like four different times and my stepfather knew right away that that was Orson Welles because he had that very unique voice yep and you know when I saw my my stepdad getting excited about that I said who is that yeah, I was just a you know, four or five year old kid and I asked, who is that? He said, that's Orson Welles. Well, to me, Orson Welles was not nearly as cool as G.I. Joe. But then, much like yourself, I learned about Orson Welles later on and just became fascinated by everything, anything and everything having to do with Orson Welles, precisely dating back to when he made Citizen Kane, and, and then prior to that as well with uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah, definitely, because that voice was so distinctive. Again, <laughs> watching it in a cartoon as a child, mm -hmm. and then hear about it in school, World of the Worlds, like, I know that voice. Wait a second. <laughs> like, this is a man who that voice sticks with you. And once you hear it, you can never unhear it. But it's, it's, funny, it's funny that you should mention the Transformers movie in this. Because um, you'd realize he played a basically a planet. Mm -hmm. He played a freaking planet. I mean, how cool do you have to be to be the guy that gets chosen to be the planet? Yeah, you know what I mean. No, I... Mm -hmm. he it just there was something about him, and it seemed like he touched everything that was, especially during the eighties, everything that was iconic, like shows like. You know, he yeah, he wasn't on, on Transformers, but then he also did um, Magnum P.I., as I mentioned earlier. He was um, in Moonlighting, I believe. It was like the first episode of Moonlighting he introduced, and Moonlighting became a very, you know, it's it's known as the show that really launched Bruce Willis's career into stardom. Mm -hmm. So Orson Welles was this individual that, even though seemed to have a you know himself a, a somewhat unfortunate end with all you know given all the promise that he'd shown early in his career there was still again just that special something about him that he's associated with everything great that i know people of our generation yours and mine and you're you're not are not that far apart um you know <laughs> people of our generation can really kind of relate and point to and say yeah i remember that that's mm -hmm. like super cool you know yep. and and even growing up where orson welles very much was not alive technically when i was growing up right he died pretty early when i was young <laughs> he died in 86 1986. Yeah. So when I was very young, but I could still remember from TV shows, from Simpsons, The Critic, whatever it is, people always bringing up Orson Welles. And it feels as if I knew Orson Welles and his career and grew up with a filmmaker that honestly really died when I was a child. Like, you know? But here's <laughs> and the that's still thing. part of his greatness. Here's the thing. Um, he even, like, inspired 
the creation of characters that would later on be iconic, like in the 90s, Pinky and the Brain. Who do you think Pinky, or not Pinky, the Brain's voice is based on? Mm-hmm. Orson Welles. The, yeah. cri- the critic, you hit it You hit it on the nail right there. I remember, remember there was an episode of The Critic where I think there's, I think Jay goes to uh, cryo, cryogenics facility and there's a guy that comes out, hey, um, these kids are skiing down Orson Welles again. Like this <laughs> like guy, like Orson Welles was in a cryogenic therapy or something. I mean, but the thing was that Orson Welles was just that unique. He was just that unique of a figure. Yes. And to me, I really, I got to say that the first time that I became interested in Orson Welles beyond what I had already known, you know, Moonlightings, I'd seen that episode. I'd seen the, the Magnum P.I. episodes with him as Robin Masters and, of course, Transformers was around 1990, early 1990. There was a special on Orson Welles that was shown on TNT. Um, TNT back then used to show like a, like a block of cartoons, you know, closer to prime time. Um, mm. I think it was on Sundays. I could be wrong. And then all of a sudden they shift they would shift it to something like a film or whatever. And this time it was something about Orson Welles. And I was mesmerized and enthralled because I was wondering, okay, is this guy a magician? Did he make just movies? Does he do cartoons? <laughs> like the dude was someone that impressed me because of how incredibly multifacetic he was. I mean, I didn't really understand how the business worked back then, right? And and, and, and how mm. he became famous and everything. But that really kind of led me to wanting to start reading more about Orson Welles, learning more about Orson Welles, his body of work. I think the first time that I watched... Citizen Kane was probably, I want to say, 92 or 93, maybe. Yeah. You know, when I was old old enough to, to kind of understand the difference in between a film that's considered a masterpiece and something that's done for, you know, shock and awe and all these other things. I mean, I didn't consider myself an expert in, in, in that yet, obviously. I was just a kid. But man, Citizen Kane was impressive and like way the hell ahead of its time, just on technical perspectives and, and things like that. So, so yeah, and I agree with you 100%. So knowing me and my journey, I'm gonna go a little into his life because when I was young, I learned him first about the World of Worlds broadcast, right? Mm-hmm. And so I went to go to his history about who he was. And he was, he was a little boy who really didn't know his father. Uh, his mother died very young. He originally wanted to be a musician. So, you know, here's someone who's already multi-talented. They thought he was going to be a great violinist. He was already good at music when young. Uh, and he actually quit all that to go and study theater in Ireland, Dublin, uh, especially Dublin. He went to join a theater troupe. I have the name here, uh, the Gate Theater. Yep, the Gate Theater. Uh, he started in Dublin. Now, why I say this is actually why, because when I was in high school and on the track team, I used to try to convince people that I was from Dublin really because of this fact in Orson Welles starting his career. I can, I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can see you doing that. At this point, I have literally not even seen Citizen Kane. It was really just being a fan of uh, just kind of his later projects in World of Worlds. And, of course, I've heard of Citizen Kane and Citizen everything's the citizen cane of something right like you know, <laughs> you know what i mean well, uh, you huge, hear that yeah. raising expression yeah so i heard that but actually studying more about his life and kind of the things that he went through uh really to wanting to go to coming from america to go and study over in england and europe at first for theater after kind of dropping music and finding his passion he goes from dublin to even uh, to even help in London to get his own theater troupe there. He starts traveling around Spain and Europe. I mean, this is this is insane. At a young, tender age of like 16. 16. And that, began, and, and that really began what would be a lifelong affair with Europe and, and foreign mm-hmm. countries. Orson Welles really... His, his 
passion, I would say uh, his his passions as far as countries went, I would have to say at least later on, but definitely from that were um, were Spain and France um, mm-hmm. in particular, uh, and and that would really be center point for him, and Europe would really be a center point for his career later on, and it's funny yes. because. Yeah, he was studying theater, but the funny thing is that Orson Welles, at, from a very early age, said, I despise college. I don't need to go to college. I don't want mm-hmm. to go to college. I mean, he, he saw college as just a waste of time. But he was so incredibly skilled at what he did, and it seemed like Orson Welles had just a knack for picking stuff up that no one else did and it was such that he was able to just progress like people really have a tendency to forget just how quickly he progressed and how young he was when he progressed okay because we're not talking about you know you say okay he died in 1986 and he was only 70 years old when he died when you look at how long people lived now he was only 70 years old when he died so he was a guy that was picking stuff up sort of you know as an apprentice of sorts and just kind of killing the curve on everything it's oh like. uh a hundred percent i mean from that gate theater where he started to go into the abbey theater in london he literally was directing plays so much so that when he came back to new york in the 1930s, he started another theater troupe and company and literally was blowing it out of the water in his theater Mercury career, theater, which, yeah. funny fact, he did radio to help pay for the theater because of his lavish productions. So he would go and just shoot radio back-to-back, even uncredited, just picked it up. And this is not like I have training in radio and radio announcing. He's like, I got a voice, I'll do it. He learned it on the spot, went back to back, and will go back to the theater to direct and act in huge stage performances and plays. It's, I mean, it, you talk about hustler and grinding, Orson Welles knew how to grind. And the funny thing about that is he, he always picked up what were things you know that would be considered passions for him that he would actually be able to eventually turn into, into his own money-making projects for example magic like orson welles picked up sleight of hand and Mm -hmm. would later be known for that but he'd already picked that up early on so it's not like anything that you saw orson welles doing ever at any point in his career was something that he wasn't already really proficient at in some point in some way shape or form and that's something that really always stood out to me about him and then he would oh yeah tell the stories of how he did stuff just to entertain himself because really that's what magic was for him it was like a form of entertainment you know he, he oh. loved it and he called it hanky panky essentially not just sleight of hand but you know hanky panky yes and he actually went on to perform it only because he's like no one really wants like none of your friends sitting in a regular room want to see magic tricks so he went out to perform magic tricks just so he can have the chance to do it that's how much he just loved magic. He just really wanted to perform it so he could have a chance. He's like, I just needed an audience because I my friends don't want to hear it anymore. But, so but, ev- but eventually, yet again, he would end up being well known, and this is later on, for appearing on like David Copperfield's early, like like his late 1970s uh, specials that had like disco music and stuff like that. And more incredible, like Orson Welles would actually appear on those. Yes, but again, was- it's just... He was able to really get stuff done in in so many ways. So again, started young as a musician, then goes to really an actor, then directing, then a radio announcer. Uh, All the time he's doing magic, we see how multi-skilled he is. And one thing I also know about Orson Welles was his um, all-black performance of Macbeth, where he actually took uh, a lot, all-black performance. Again, we're talking at a time where America's not really excited, especially about their entertainment, to have minorities and especially African Americans. And he made it a point, he said he wanted to make that play because he wanted it to give black actors a chance to just yeah. 
just to do Shakespeare without it being exotic or, or, or a spectacle or anything else. Uh, and so he made it a point. He said it in Haiti. I'm Haitian, so I Uh, You know, he actually got uh, people from there to perform and got all black actors. And it was a huge hit. But that is something that he felt very passionate about. Uh, theater itself and having everyone to have that chance and exclusivity, which, again, at the time, really, really was not around. Like, really wasn't around. So that's even forward-thinking and progressive for a man in the 30s. He was, extremely, he was extremely forward-thinking and progressive in, in a million ways. Um, he, he was a causist. But his mm-hmm. causes weren't, you know, causes for the sake of causes. He actually, you know, embraced causes for the sake of actually helping, you know, change and, and, and make thing, you know, making things better. So there's, there, there were always reasons for why he did stuff like that. It wasn't really to be seen. It nope. he never struck me as that kind of person um, for for any reason. And if yep. you look, if you look at how much voiceover work he did, that right there should tell you he he wasn't always about being seen. You know? Yeah, and that's so, and that's the most incredible thing, really. Again, his Mercury Theater in New York. Uh, which, again, modern day playing a Julius Caesar where everybody was in modern dress because modernizing old concepts, that's, a, <laughs> that's an important factor there. Uh, really, all that radio work was really just to support theater until War of the Worlds, and then his name became a household name. At that point, again, doing radio for just the money to keep the theater, not for his name, he'd go uncredited because it's not about, it wasn't about, oh, I need to be seen. Even at a mm-hmm. time, he was actively trying to get Hollywood uh, roles. They weren't casting. They weren't casting at all. So this is a person who could have been like, I'm using my radio to boost it. He was the shadow. So if you know about the shadow, he literally was the shadow before uh, in the radio dramas. Fantastic. One of the most fantastic. Really, the shadow was one of the first real superheroes that, that was performed and performing radio. So like, you know, Orson Welles doing The Shadow is is really something iconic, but for some reason it's something that goes unnoticed quite a bit. Not that many people talk about, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. Orson Welles doing The Shadow, he was he was really spectacular doing that particular show. Yeah, and that and that all comes to again, he wasn't going out there to to be on The Shadow, no. so it was it was just to do it. So War of the Worlds, of course, the broadcast that changed. It changed his career and his trajectory in the world. It brought his name to the front page and to everyone, which is why they gave him basically a blank check uh, for his production company to make any movie that he yeah, wanted RKO, to do. RKO basically came knocking and said, we, you know, we love you. We want you to. And the thing with War of the Worlds, War of the Worlds was insanely ahead of its time because it was so controversial. Like, there was a widespread panic in the United States from everyone that heard that broadcast, and that broadcast had quite a bit of reach. So, everyone that heard it was panicked. Then, when they interviewed Orson Welles about it, he just very calmly said, Oh, no, no, that was just, uh, we were, that was not supposed to happen. Of course, he knew that would happen. Because he was smart enough to understand that people were going to go crazy about something like that. And mm-hmm. in this way, um, he would just... And, and it really made him famous all across the country. Like, overnight. Yep. I mean, he was already a known figure, kind of. But this made him famous all across the country. And that's when a lot of his behavior really started becoming kind of fun and interesting to watch. Um, at one point, he had a horse-drawn carriage <laughs> take him from the radio station in New York to the theater. Yeah, literally. And he would get out of a freaking horse-drawn carriage. I mean, you already knew this guy was going to be something special. And when they gave him that blank check in RKO, he became the most talked-about property that they had. And yep. let me emphasize the word property because back then, you know, there was an expectation. Actors had to draw. You had to draw. The box office was like your key thing. Studios did not have parent companies. 
So they needed mm-hmm. to make money, and they felt that they were going to make a ton of money on Orson Welles. That really would not be the case, but they thought they were going to have this incredible, um, you know, gold mine in Orson Welles, and you know, I mean, maybe long term, but uh, that's not what happened. <laughs> And we we do not have enough time to go over everything about Citizen Kane, the first no, film that he no. would make. Uh, that would take hours and a whole separate podcast. <laughs> it would take about two or three podcasts because it there's like a million there's like a million different things about about Citizen Kane. Um, for my part, what I will say, um, first of all, the film was a technical marvel, especially when you see that. Um, the character of Charles Foster Kane, which was primarily based on William Randolph Hearst, whom he did not like and who did not like mm-hmm. him. And this was all over animals. Basically, long story short, Orson Welles is invited there. He's talking about a bullfighter. Orson Welles loved bullfighting. William Randolph Hearst was an animal lover. They had a disagreement about that. And Orson Welles felt, you know, who is this self baroness prick to tell me anything? So really, that's how the Citizen Kane came about. Um, yep. And even when he was trying to shoot it, I was going to say something. Everyone told him that it couldn't be done. So he actually even pill- picked some cinematographers that didn't know anything about film because he's like, "So you don't know what you don't know, or you don't know what you can't do." So Orson Welles really was big and intense of that. He originally even his lighting because coming from theater this was his first film so he had no clue so he even thought he had to do the lighting and everything so he would come in he taught his camera like teach me how to film it and like it took him three hours to learn and went and he started filming he's like film can be learned the technical aspects he's like that can be learned in like three hours the rest of it is your vision yeah so and he always said he was he had the confidence of ignorance in order to make citizen Kane. well one of the things one of the things that made citizen Kane such a such a beauty uh visually is the fact that they were doing um what's called low angle shots and the low angle shots that they were doing for that film um made the character especially charles foster kane look bigger than they were Mm -hmm. Um, his whole take on that was if you're going to have a guy that's that's going to be so hateful then this is this is how this needs to happen so he had a great understanding of that a really great understanding of of how his characters uh needed to look and yeah nobody wanted him to make that film because the people that were in the know thought that was going to be career suicide yep and then the people that Wanted to try and figure out what was going on, like Luella Parsons had a hopper. People, um, especially Luella Parsons, who was a, a gossip columnist that worked for William Randolph Hearst's publications, um, they wanted to know, and you know, because no one could dare touch the mighty William Randolph Hearst at all. Like nope, Orson Welles was the it. first person. Yeah, they they tried to mess him up in the worst of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. they tried once. Once they knew about this, they tried to mess him up in the in the worst of ways. Like Orson Welles got lucky so many times that he didn't get accused of rape, like a false accusation yep. of rape or anything like that. Because like one time they planted a they planted a girl, a naked girl, in his room with like torn up clothes, and coming into a hotel, a guy said, "Hey, don't go to your room. They're gonna frame you for rape." So it was underage too. It was a minor too. Yeah, so they were trying to. They were really trying trying to get get them. They were working hard to keep that from coming because they felt that that was going to um, to really uh, help undermine any effort to make William Randall first look bad. Which I mean, at the end, it's not like they killed the Hearst Empire in any way, shape, or form. And the film wasn't really that big of a box office hit. No, and that's also because to make sure it wasn't seen they they really rallied against to make sure that movie to, wasn't seen as much as it should have been yeah <laughs> All aside, so. didn't work though no, long term long term it didn't work short term it didn't work 
So, you know, it's, it's <coughs> sometimes if you ever heard people nowadays going, it's not always about the box office. Uh, Citizen Kane is probably the prime example of it's not about the box office. Mm-hmm. Uh, box office, it did it did not make, I, I don't even think it turned a profit. It did not make a lot of money in the box office. Because it was but over it was budget. A lot. Yeah. Uh, it was allotted, allotted. And, of course, you probably know it now as one of the greatest films of all time. And his very first film out, he made one of the best films of all time. So that shows you how genius this this man was, honestly. Well, if you also look at his second effort, which was the Magnificent Ambersons, that was, some people actually say that Magnificent Ambersons was as good, if not better, than, um, than Citizen Kane from the per- perspective of story. And the thing is, Orson Welles was doing something then that not a lot of people were doing, is he was telling stories about the upper classes that really brought them down to size and scope so you know and it made people understand that look everybody's got problems no one's perfect okay so i think that orson wells from a storytelling perspective was doing something really cool that no one had really done before not not the way you know because film was was a controlled environment the studios controlled what was seen and what wasn't whether it made money or not is completely irrelevant and it was if it's irrelevant now it's it was more irrelevant back then uh well it wasn't irrelevant because it was necessary for something to make money but i'm saying that in sheer volume studios could make money back and they knew exactly who they were going to give the choice roles to and who they weren't going to do, give the choice roles to. I mean, everything was very, very specifically structured and tailored. Orson Welles sort of started kind of, you know, chipping at that with a hammer. And I don't think and, that he gets enough credit for that. Yeah, and really because of that, uh, <laughs> to hate to bring it back to something else we watch, but if you really want to know about restoring director's cut... It would be Orson Welles' really whole career. Because from Citizen Kane forward, Orson Welles basically never got to have his true vision in a film again. No. From the Mac and Abraham Touch of Evil, which is on my background poster if you're watching here, the studios would always step in and cut and destroy his movies over and over and over again. So he went from one of the greatest movies of all time to follow-ups which you could see the touch of greatness there, but are also heavily edited by the studios themselves, who usually cut them out of the post-production process. I, I, I totally um, see that, but the one thing that I found fascinating about Orson Welles, upon doing a little bit more um, research into the things that he would do is he would he started then turning to europe and Mm -hmm. if you look at the stuff that he did in europe there was a lot more conceptual art to his pieces there was a lot more in terms of how things were shot look up everything that he did in europe and, and and i'm talking about 40s 50s Right around that time that he was still doing stuff in the United States, but he really started becoming more of a more of a presence in Europe. The difference is 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 quite it's something. I mean, his mm. stuff, like stuff that he did in Europe, was amazing. You know, and it and it really it, it had that Fellini esque quality. You know, <laughs> but then. <laughs> But then you look at his stuff, and it's like, for example, he was heavily influenced by the works of uh, Francisco Goya. So Mm. whenever he would shoot a crowd scene, if you look at a crowd scene, big or small, and look at Chimes at Midnight, which is much later on, you look at a crowd scene by Wells, it was like a Goya painting. Like, he he had that sort of vision in terms of how he wanted to shoot things. So everything that he shot was incredibly pristine and it would not go through the just enormous amount of crap that it would have to go through in the, in the States, you know? 
Yes. In one interview, he said, I think it is BBC interview. Mm -hmm. He literally said, my pictures do not work unless it's my way. Uh, so, and that was kind of a rallying cry. So he knew that if he had to compromise, he wasn't a person who should make movies, especially Hollywood movies, because of his past and with the studios that always wanted compromise. Yeah. And when you see Orson Welles, and I'm going to use Touch of Evil because that opening shot in Touch of Evil, which, you know, people, the one shot, in the, uh, and if you don't know, he does one take. Uh, moving throughout the city through there. And, and you've seen that parody now a lot of times. We've all seen the one shot yeah. as characters move on. But Wells is doing it way back in the day. <laughs> but he's telling... Way back in the day. In that one particular shot, and this is something you don't really see anymore, he's telling, like, three different stories. Yes. And the music which was Latin music, because Wells was heavily influenced by Latin culture, yes. everything of that nature. The music, the way that the shot just changes perspective until you mm -hmm. finally have this one freaking crazy explosion. He's building this suspense to where you don't know exactly which way you want to run with this. It was absolutely masterful. I have not seen any real filmmaking like that. I don't think in modern times. I mean, there. I guess if I look hard enough, uh, maybe mm. through one of the 12,000 hours of Justice League. <clears throat> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, no, you're 100% true. Because Arson Wells always tried to do things for his vision. He didn't let kind of the technical aspects or what a quote unquote filmmakers do stop him from yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, in Touch of Evil, Char uh, um, Charleston Heston, who suggested Wells be on the film, said he didn't even understand why studios constantly cut up his films. He's like, if you look at Orson Wells, he constantly did more with film and spent less money than Coppola or all the other ones and did so much greater things with it that he did not understand why Hollywood did not trust his films. Because at the end of the day, the studios didn't trust, didn't trust his films. Hollywood studios never trust his films. Uh, and and it's, it's one of those big things. He trusted himself, but Hollywood did not trust his films. He was still a great actor, but directing, he would go on to direct very few Hollywood films because of it. Well, I think that part of the problem with that was they... You know, there's there's a formulaic way of doing things, okay? Mm. I'm going to do five takes for every scene, six takes maybe, and I'm going to bring this thing in, you know, on budget, on schedule. That's it. And I better make it work. And some people could make that formulaic way of doing things work. Orson Welles was looking for perfect shots he was looking for the most absolutely perfect performance that he could get out of an actor yes but he still did that on time and under budget he could be as artistic because studios always thought he was quote-unquote difficult to work with but if you go and look at orson's film the reason he would why, do it under time and under budget the reason why he was considered difficult to work with was because he was not going to be put in a position where a producer and look this is where you really need to understand the business a director has to bring what's on paper forward a producer's mm -hmm. job is completely separate than that unless you know you have a person who's a triple threat writer director producer a producer is working for the studio so Orson Welles was not going to take crap from anyone that did not understand why you needed more film to take do a specific shot and that really is a very important factor if you needed more film to do a specific shot go ahead and freaking do it i mean and and you know you have someone thinking from the perspective of well film stock is expensive well it doesn't it, you know it's not about the film stock always it's about if if you want this to really work Here's the way it's going to work. Listen to me. The problem was that a lot of people were given power and free reign 
to say, well, we're cutting you off right here, or we're not doing this, and this is not the way that it needs to be. People that honestly did not have any reason to be doing that. They did not have the knowledge, the scope, or the understanding from the artistic perspective. Fact of the matter yeah. is, you know, Orson Welles was, was coming up at a time where things were changing. Again, you want to talk about technical specs? Look at how in Citizen Kane, he was talking, like you see a shot of Foster Kane talking to Hitler and talking to Mussolini. Where else in the hell did you see that prior to that? You know, you see it now all the freaking time. You go, oh, I can CGI this. Well, he was doing CGI before there was freaking CGI. But making uh -huh. it realistic at that point in time was damn near impossible. But, again, you have people that work as suits, basically, that were constantly restraining him. And they thought yep. he was difficult because, I sh you know, I should not have to explain to you and I get really passionate, but I should not have to freaking explain something to you more than one time. If we're in the same industry, I should not have to explain it to you more than one time for you to understand what I'm trying to freaking say. Yep. And if we can't get in that in that line, what's going to happen is, oh, he's difficult. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why am I difficult? Because I explain something to you and you don't freaking get it? Because you can't see past what's in your face? Come on. Yeah, no, 100%. So he would still act, but mostly his love affair with Europe, uh, as Rick mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. basically took him overseas where he would still do projects from time to time. But voice acting, acting was mostly what he would do, living his life and passion and art, much less directing uh, uh, films, again, uh, <laughs> that would come to. Unfortunately, because of the era he was in, uh, and we don't have released the uh, Wells cut, uh, hashtag trending. <laughs> or is it was kind of just, just pushed out to his side. But it's yeah. something that throughout his whole career, when he's doing magic and everything else, he is still such a respected figure in Hollywood. Uh, one thing I'd like to bring up, it was one point uh, he was um, he was standing in for the host of the Dick Cavett show, and Andy Kaufman was on. And Andy Kaufman, known for playing his characters, known for kind of messing up every interview he's in in the sense that like he's a performance artist. he'll do whatever yeah, he yeah wants, exactly right <laughs> famously throwing people for a loop but you can go and you could youtube this interview with him and orson wells and he is the most respectful person when sitting across from orson wells and orson wells is talking to him like he understands and gets it and andy kaufman knows he gets it so he talks to him just regularly like a person and is actually timid. And it's so weird if you know anything about Andy Kaufman to see that. Well, that shows you how much respect he carried even in an industry where, and I think Andy Kaufman also understands this, where people are trying to push him out too and didn't get him, where people don't get your genius. And so that's the kind of gravitas Orson Welles would put on wherever well, he went. And, and Orson Welles, one of the things that honestly is, even if people some people didn't get them because you know i'm sorry there is a massive separation between talent and and people that have a vision and people that are just there for numbers and that's mm -hmm. always been a fact and that always will be a fact um so that adds to it but if you look at um uh, for example orson wells did um an, had an appearance at the uh, dean martin show which ran from, I believe, 65 through 74. This had to have been maybe 68, 69. He was already pretty overweight. Didn't have the big beard yet, but... Um, he basically does this unbelievable performance where he transforms himself into Falstaff in front of a mirror, just, like, making himself up Okay, talking about the character of Falstaff and then shifts into a Falstaff performance. Mm-hmm. All right, and this is one of those memorable moments in television that even if you're not watching it live as it happened, to hear the amount of silence in a live studio audience as the music plays 
You know, Dean Martin was a huge star at that point. Massive star. Probably yep. one of the biggest stars in all of television. He didn't even appear on camera when he introduced Orson, Orson Welles. Orson Welles was, was a guy that just... He, again, there was something unique about him that it, it commanded respect. When you saw him on screen, you were going to respect the hell out of what he did. And as far as an actor goes, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for being a truly great actor. An amazing actor. Because for me, I have to, for, for, for something to, to really capture my attention, I have to completely turn everything off around me. Meaning that if I'm looking at it, I've got to turn it off around me completely. He did a film in the 1960s where he's playing an attorney defending these two um, rich young men that have committed a murder. And it was based on the Leopold and Loeb murders. Okay. Uh, if you look up the Leopold and Loeb murders, this was a very tragic situation, what have you. They were defended, I believe, by Clarence Darrow. Orson Welles goes into this unbelievable monologue. You don't just sense the, 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 like the, the silence around you because you've got nothing, nothing else around you, but you sense almost a silence on set that he captured. And it was like a 12-minute monologue. I mean, this was un-freaking-believable how that guy could get you to just listen. That's, yeah. that's all you ended up doing. And I watched the the unfinished uh, or unaired pilots for his magic show. Mm -hmm. um, I watched F is for Fake. Yes, a documentary which shows they did. shows his humility. And I and one of the things we're talking about this greatness of him, but he wasn't like a braggadocious guy. Didn't so even even his films that people are like, this was great, this was great, this was great. When you ask them even later on in his life, he's like, listen, I never even watched a film after I finished cutting. After he finished directing and cut it, he never watched it. Because he was afraid once he watched it, he would hate it, and he was very self-conscious about it. So that's right. He didn't even see Citizen Kane. He didn't see it at the premiere. He's like, I saw a little bit of at the premiere, and that was it. He never watched it again. Yeah. So he wasn't a person who would even come out and say, Oh, how does it feel to make the greatest film of all time? He would say, I didn't make the greatest film of all time. My next film will be the greatest film of all time. Like, you know, he was yeah, always thinking the next. He never watched it. He never wanted to do So this is a man who's done amazing and great things, but never bragged about it. He's never like, yeah, I'm the greatest filmmaker. Look at me. None of that. He didn't have an ego associated with that. You actually, you want to know what's one of the greatest um, lines he ever delivered? Uh, and I can't 100% do it justice, but it wasn't a film at all. He was receiving an award. Um, I believe it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. I don't believe it was the uh, the AFI, or it might have been the AFI. I'm not sure, because he received a few of them. Um, but in this particular one, <laughs> at this point in the 70s, when he, when, he, when he got this award, he was doing commercials, you know, radio commercials for Peas, Peeps, Paul Masson Champagne, and a lot of that stuff that he was doing was so he could continue to finance his own films because Orson Welles went from being a contracted studio commodity to being the ultimate independent filmmaker. And this is what a lot of people mm -hmm. don't get that makes him so unique. He, he holds on to this incredible status, but he's doing his own stuff now. And he says, at some point, you can just... Look at me as your friendly neighborhood grocer. He's receiving like a lifetime achievement <laughs> award. All right, he's wearing this freaking like incredible like uh, you know tuxedo and everything. I mean, and he just says that, and the whole audience, because there's a guy who could build something up and just mm -hmm. turn it into something magical like that. Like he yep. could really do that. He was freaking yes, unbelievable, man. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And, and and so I want to bring that up since you just said it about the ultimate independent filmmakers. Because we're yeah. independent filmmakers ourselves. 
So, you know, what does Orson Welles mean to you as an independent filmmaker when you see that, when you look at that? What Orson Welles means to me is this. He had a vision of how he wanted things to get done. He understood that not everybody shared that vision. He understood that more people were against him than were for him. Uh, it could have been out of jealousy. It could have been simply because they didn't understand anything, whatever. He was clear on, on how things need to be. But he was clear on the fact that if he put his everything into being this ultimate independent filmmaker, that no matter what he did, he was going to be so good at it that he was going to be able to you know, go ahead and turn around and then on the other end, give you something even greater. It took time. It took patience. It didn't always work out for him because he had a lot of unfinished projects. But there was mm -hmm. just that special something about it, just never giving up. Till the very end, the man was working. The man believed in his vision. And that inspired me in a lot of ways because I think that we are at a point in time now that, for example, if Orson Welles were alive, he'd be making like 100 movies a month for Netflix. I, I, mm -hmm. I legitimately believe that this would be the guy that would have like a like a thirty million dollar contract <laughs> with with like a peeps clause and a champagne clause and, and a hot dogs clause because he loved him some hot dogs. I think that Orson Welles would be that kind of guy because he believed so fervently in his vision and and that that's what that means to me. That's what he meant to me as I got to understand his his work and for me uh and especially i come from theater background i love theater used to study theater uh theater's where it is and when i look at his projects and how he talks about it it, it resonates with me because it's the embodiment of stories and character that theater is you know, not as popular as film and movie and other entertainment forms are right now, right? Uh, theater's definitely on the way, uh, uh, definitely probably a smaller form of entertainment right now. But when you're on theater, when you're on stage, the emotions and passion and the story and characters that you're trying to bring in life and invoke in the people that you watch carries over to me in film as well. And I think Orson Welles mm -hmm. also really much understood that. He, it, it was very much about characters and feelings and embodiment. So when he does that famous line for Sidney and Kane, when William Random Hurst didn't see it, and he tells him, like, hey, my character would have saw it, right? Like, he would have came to the theater. He knows it. He envisioned it. It is real. It's not just entertainment. It's not just some story. It's not just a Hollywood blockbuster. There is, there is something behind all of this. There's a message, a vision, some, a story that you should be giving people. This passion that comes through. And Orson Welles had that passion. It shows that when you do something, imbue that passion in what you do. And if you do, right, then you'll truly make something great. So that's, that's what I always get from that. Just have passion in what you do. And I think that is why I could be a little kid hearing him as a voice of a planet in Transformers and believe and, and know that voice. And it feels with me because that passion that Orson Welles had and no matter what he did to making people believe that aliens are attacking the earth and everything in between. Going back to that, going back to what you just said, I'm a little kid listening to a planet. Ask 90% of the people that saw that film which, honestly, I mean, I love Transformers, but that, that wasn't such a great film because of things that happened that shouldn't have happened early on. And I'm just going to leave it there because, you know, <laughs> different podcasts. We're talking about the animated movie, by the way, not the Michael Bay movie. No, we're talking about the anybody... animated movie. We're talking about the movie. <laughs> um, you know, ask 90% of the people. They'll remember that more than anything else. Because there is something about that scene, and it's freaking drawn for goodness sake. It is drawn. It is a drawn scene. But there is something that just captures you 
And it goes back to something Orson Welles used to say. You have to know one thing. There's a difference between a crowd and an audience. And if you have a crowd, you better want to turn them into an audience. Mm-hmm. You know, he always used to say that. In some way, shape, or form, he used to make that very clear. He's like, if, if there's an applause sign, that's not an audience. Mm-hmm. So he played always to an audience. You just said it. You said it three or four times when referencing Transformers. Because that's the one thing that I know I remember, you know you remember, and anybody else that watched that movie will remember far more than the actual rest of the film itself. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember two things from the film, and one of them is Orson Welles. (laughs) And then the other one is, You got the touch! No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Freaking song, oh my god. So if, if you have not had the chance to see Orson Welles' films or career, we're lucky we're in a chance that you can see Citizen Kane. And and I get that <sighs> Citizen Kane may be old now. So maybe start with some of his newer films. Uh, definitely not F is for Fake because that's kind of a, 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 a comedic thing about his whole career. So I wouldn't start with that one. Well, no, <laughs> F, is, F is for Fake is, is the documentary. It was It's really – they ended up calling it a film essay – but it's about this guy who was the world's greatest art forger. But he has like actual acting elements in it, which I thought, man, this was really cool. Um, yeah, I, it's a great know. film, but I wouldn't start with it because you have to have an understanding because it's a commentary on his own career. So, you know, you got to understand his own career probably before going into that one. But really check out the Magnificent Abraham Touch of Evil. Uh, these are really great films. Chimes Go back midnight. to Citizen Kane. Watch interviews. Uh, BBC has a documentary you can find online. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of his really real long interviews. And just listen to him even talk about what he does. Watch a magic performance, as Rick said. All of these things will show you that passion and gravitas that really uh, uh, Orson Welles brings to the table. And then watch some of his commercials. Because his commercials hilarious. are hilarious. Yeah. And the outtakes, and, and, also kind of hilarious as well. Yeah, and, and again, you can learn a lot from watching. <laughs> if you're an independent filmmaker out there, you can learn a lot from just listening to Orson Welles yeah. and what he says. And even though we're far removed from what he used to, you know, from Hollywood and things have changed, the vision, the impact, uh, the passion that he had uh, uh, is really something that you can learn from today. Absolutely. I totally agree with... Uh with Jonathan and um, honestly I I mean as far as Orson goes I'm a little bit different in that I would say pretty much you'd be blessed to watch anything that Orson Welles did or just <laughs> actually do no or just do the research take the time to do the research on his career so you could learn about what it was that made him unique don't focus on the things that you hear or see or might get bits of, of uh, info from YouTube or what have you. That's crap. Really think about looking at his work in, in, a, in a far longer and broader scope because he's really, you know, he's just great. Yeah, and, and in the hour we've been talking about it, we cannot do justice because, again, you no. literally spent a whole... You can spend a whole college semester on just Orson Welles himself. <laughs> they should. So, they actually should. And, I mean, they're and, not doing it already. Really they should. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is very small. But with that said, of course, uh, my recommendation for this week is, of course, watch an Orson Welles film. Uh, that's that's going to be mine. I'm going to say Touch of Evil. Everyone knows Citizen Kane. But I'm going to say Touch of Evil because I think it's directing in that is amazing. And his actual character, the police captain... Because he also acted in it. He tends to direct and act in his plays. is amazing. It is Oscar worthy in and of itself. I would have to say, if you're going to watch something, um, I'm torn. Because I like The Magnificent Ambersons. But I also like uh, Chimes at Midnight. I think The Chimes at Midnight is really one of his most emotionally involved performances. There was just something there. Um, so I suggest that. But also, you can't go wrong with Touch of Evil. So watch that as well. 
and uh, yeah, those, that's really the only definitely thing I can say. Definitely watch that when he changes in the fall staff. Definitely watch that, even if you're interested in acting. Oh, the, Dean, the Dean Martin show? Yeah, look it up. Oh, yeah. Look up. Yeah. Uh, Orson Welles appears on the Dean Martin show. Not the roast, the show. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So if you don't have time, watch that clip. Also watch one of his Magic Act clips, and then watch one of his movies and just see how emmatic and different the man is and how much yeah. talented he is. I think that would give you a lot of good feelings. Like a lot of good overview, a little little bit. <laughs> All-time great, man. All-time great. And if you're a fan of Andy Kaufman, I'm saying you could find that interview. Find that interview with Andy Kaufman and Orson Welles because if you know how much of character Orson Welles is and then uh, – I'm sorry, Andy Kaufman is and then see with Orson Welles, I think it will give you a hint of even your favorites, right, why they thought so highly of and you can see that in stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So next week, we'll probably, since we're in our old-timey feel here, we'll probably talk a little more about Hollywood. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. You'll have to tune in. <laughs> As always, like, share, and subscribe. Uh, tell Ali hi on our Instagram. And eat your popcorn. And your, your peas. <laughs> you know, I know a little place where peas grow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you here next week on Cinemagic. <laughs> nice.